I'll tell you what we're going to get now is the study of God's Word. So let's turn to 2 Samuel chapter 18 tonight. And it did bring the focus to an interesting issue. Sometimes we can draw the attention that should be on the Lord on ourselves. And we can become a distraction. There's a number of ways to do that. One way is to just, even in the middle of a Bible study, you can be sitting up to the front and you just say, I'm done now, there's a show on television, I'm leaving. Then suddenly everybody's eyes that were focused on a point are now focused on you as you get up and leave. It's the same issue. The attention gets off the Lord and gets on, on you. And so we're respectful about it, but we do ask uh, that um, once the Bible study begins that you remain seated for the entire Bible study in your place, Bible open, focused on the Lord, focused on what God has for you for the entire time of the study, whether you like the point or not, to sit through it all and give God the attention and the glory, the honor that is due Him. Now we understand that some people think that's harsh. Well, other churches don't do that. That's why I thank God there are other churches in the community for you to attend. But if you attend here, we ask that you don't distract from the study of the Word. We don't pretend to be like other churches. We're not in competition at all. We feel we all complement each other and we all love the Lord. So great, more power to you, more power to them. But while we're here, let's give God our focus, attention, turn off the cell phones, turn off uh, Game Boys, uh, small television sets and transistor radios, etc. Chapter 18, 2 Samuel. And how are you doing for temperature tonight? You're okay. Now, here's just a, a partial, perhaps, problem. We have air conditioning going up in the front and toward the back. There's four air conditioning units that have been pulled off, and the new ones are on the roof, but they're not turned on yet. Which means, if, as the night goes through, it might be fine, but it might get hot. If it gets, like, unbearable, we're just going to close and worship and wait till we can get it fixed, but I think we're going to be fine. But I'm just, we're, we'll, we'll just play it by ear and, and be sensitive to, to the outcome of the evening. We've been on a fun ride so far. We'll just see <laughs> where this all goes. Blessed are the flexible. They shall not be broken. <laughs> of all the storms that can come into an individual's life, the toughest have to be relational storms. You know what I mean by that? When there's a failure of communication or getting along, one person with another person, a friend with another friend, a husband with a wife, a parent with a child, a boss with an employee, those kinds of things, I think, are the worst possible kind of storms that we face. And none is worse than stress and strain in the home. Why? Because the home should be a place of refuge. It should be a shelter. It should be a place where you experience love and acceptance more than any other place. So when you're not being sheltered, when you're not being nurtured, when you're not being loved and accepted, it's an alienated, alienating kind of a feeling. David's home was torn, divided, disrupted. It wasn't a shelter. 
And there were so many different issues that happened, not just what he had done in the past, but his son raped his sister. That was Amnon. Amnon was then murdered by Absalom. Absalom went further to want to divide the kingdom and take over the throne of his father David. So David is experiencing the consequences of a ripped up, torn apart family life. It's a storm that was difficult and lasted for many, many years. What made it worse was David's response to all of these problems. Rather than being a leader, a man, and saying, you know what, let's fix these problems, let's sit down and reconcile, let's talk, let's extend love and forgiveness, and I'll be the first to start, he was distant like some men are, aloof like some men are, lacking the tools, the capability to humble himself and start that dialogue with his family. And that created lots of problems. It created animosity, hatred, revenge in the heart of a boy named Absalom who should have been long before this reconciled with his father. There is a special dynamic that a father and a son share. And the reason there is that special dynamic is that a dad is supposed to be an example to a son of what it is to grow up and be a husband, what it is to grow up and be a father, to be a leader, to be a man of God. A child's concept of fatherhood comes from his father. A child's concept of being a husband comes from his dad. And a child's concept of God even comes from his dad because he's used to growing up and looking up to this man who is his father. And then, as he becomes a Christian and accepts Christ and has his own spiritual walk, he is taught to address God in a similar fashion. Heavenly Father. At the moment in which he does that, at the moment in which he prays that kind of a prayer, addressing God as his own father, the word itself, Father, triggers all sorts of emotions and feelings and thoughts from his past growing up. So if his father was a wonderful figure, a protector, someone who was integrated, someone who gave love and support, when he thinks of God as father, it's like, oh. But imagine what it's like to have a father who is distant, aloof, harsh. And now he says the word father, but he has to now get past the barrier of what his earthly father was like that has formed a picture in his mind of authority. And he has to sometimes take years to deprogram and reprogram what Paul called the renewing of one's mind to understand that God isn't like that. God's perfect. God is beyond any kind of human emblem or example. However, it does underscore the importance of the role of a father in the life of a child. And all of that is preparatory for this Civil War chapter, chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, where a son is um, antagonistic and trying to usurp his father's authority. Think for a moment what Absalom saw in terms of an example of his own earthly dad, David. 
Think of some of the examples he saw. For instance, Absalom would have learned from observing his father, David, yes, a man after God's own heart, but, but very imperfect as we now know. He, he would have learned from his father that it seems okay to manipulate people by your position to get what you want. He was the king. He wanted Bathsheba. He was the king. He wanted her husband dead. He arranged all of that. He manipulated by his own position to get his own way. Number two, Absalom would have learned that power is intoxicating. It's fun to boss people around. It's fun to command armies and make laws and have people ooh and awe and stand up when, when you enter a room with your royal robes and crown. He saw that, made an impression. All of these things Absalom learned from his father and something else. He learned that the worst form of punishment relationally is alienation. It's a fate worse than death. Because as Absalom came back to Jerusalem, he was alienated by his father who refused to fully reconcile with his son. And that's what bred the antagonism and caused the rebellion. And all of those things he learned... He learned so well, he's practicing them all. He wants the power. He wants the manipulation factor. And he will alienate his father by pushing his father and his father's army and kingdom and close associates out of Jerusalem. David is a classic example, I believe personally, of what we're told as dads not to do by Paul the Apostle in Ephesians. Do not Provoke your children to wrath. Fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath. When a child feels like I am an intrusion to my father's life, space, time, I'm an intrusion, I'm an inconvenience, it's the worst thing that can happen. I grew up as an angry young man. I'm not going to retell you my story. You've heard it so many times. But I grew up with that, feeling alienated from my father, wanting his love, wanting his acceptance. And, and he was an older guy, a World War II generation guy. He wasn't real lovey-dovey, hands, kiss, hug, son, how are you? It, it was just a different time and generation. And some of you know what I'm talking about. And the Lord did some wonderful things, but there grew in my heart a bitterness toward my father that my mom fought hard and, and, and long against in my life. And it wasn't really, not only till I received Christ, but till God did a number in my life and showed me, you're my child, I'm your heavenly father, you're outside the home, you are the one that needs to extend love and forgiveness and be the example. That things began to change. I hope, and I'm just speaking from my heart now to dads, never allow your child to feel like they're an inconvenience to you. In the 19th century, there was a politician. I think his name was John Francis Smith. Busy man. Very well known, but little known by his own family. He went fishing one day with his son. 
And they found something written from that day in his journal. Here was the entry. Went fishing today with my son. A day wasted. His son kept a journal because dad did. In his son's journal it read, Went fishing today with my dad. The most wonderful day of my life. Absalom did not have many days. And now in chapter 18 we're smack dab in the middle of a rebellion, a civil war. One of the worst blights in any nation is a civil war, and the civil war is with father and with son. Let's get into the particulars of the battle. And David numbered the people who were with him and set captains of thousands and captains of hundreds over them. And David sent out one-third of the people under the hand of Joab, one-third under the hand of Abishai. You know him by now. You've been with us the son of Zeruiah, Joab's brother, and one-third under the hand of Ittai the Gittite. Remember him as well. And the king said to the people, I also will surely go out with you myself. Something is apparent right off the bat. David is a skilled warrior. He knows when there's a battle what to do immediately. Three companies, he divides the army and divide and conquer. It was an, it was an ancient military method. Absalom, on the other hand, was an unskilled warrior, had a ragtag militia up against well-trained army. They didn't have a chance, especially since the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim, just north of the Jabbok River in a very hilly country. It was very difficult. And actually more died just from the terrain dangers than they did from the edge of the sword. And they're up against a skilled warrior who has fought many battles. Now... David says, I'm going to battle with you. Notice what they say. The people answered, you shall not go out. For if we flee away, they won't care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now. For you are now more help to us in the city. David, stay home. Don't fight. This is a battle from your son against you. You are the prize, man. And they know that if you die, you're the king, you're the monarch. If you die, that we will be unstable. We will be demoralized. They're after you. They don't care about us. It's true that in a regime, in a monarchy especially, where there is a king and all allegiance is on the king, if you can get rid of the king, you will destabilize the regime. That was the whole thought in the minds of the American and British military in trying to find Saddam Hussein and the upper echelon of rulership in that country because they knew it would destabilize the people. That's why they kept playing those videotapes. Who knows if they were months old even. Here's Saddam again, here's Saddam again, just to get the people's, oh, he's, he made it through because they know the destabilizing effect of getting rid of a leader. So do David's army. So they want him safe. He stays in the city. He's across the Jordan River. He's in the Transjordan area. He's in an area where there is a vassal king. He's in control of the region. And he is protected by a good old friend that we're going to see in just a little bit. The people answered, you shall not go out. But if we flee away, they will not care about us. Nor if half of us die, will they care about us. But you are worth 10,000 of us now, for you are now more help to us in the city. And so the king said to them, 
Whatever seems best to you, I will do it. Then the king stood beside the gate, and all the people went out by hundreds and by thousands. Now the king had commanded Joab, Abishai, and Ittai, that's Ittai, the Gittite, saying, Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And all the people heard when the king gave all the captain's orders concerning Absalom. Can you hear the heart of a father? He didn't know how to reconcile with his son. He didn't know how to really extend forgiveness personally to his son. He shut his son out. But you can hear that cry, that mourning in his heart. Oh, deal gently with Absalom. You know, he, Absalom is the guy that is the reason for the split in the kingdom. Oh, but deal gently with him. He's my son. And as the people left and he was standing by the gate, you can just picture them, can't you, filing out in ranks, a third with Joab, a third with Abishai, a third with Ittai the Gittite. And each group that went out, he'd say, hey, now, whatever you do, if you find Absalom, be gentle with him. Be careful. He's my son. Be good to him. It's almost as if David has a naivete about the real problem here. It's almost as if he views what his son has done as just sort of a youthful escapade. You know, kids these days, they get into all sorts of things. The drugs, the rock and roll, overthrowing kingdoms. It's just kid stuff. You know, they all do it. He's blinded to the gravity of it. Now, Joab knows better. He's going to disobey the king. He has no excuse for that. It's not right. But he knows the gravity of the situation. We're dealing with a national crisis here. And you're going to see Joab take matters into his own hands and disobey the king's orders. After all, Joab was a ruthless military man. He was the guy that killed Abner, who defected to David's army just because he didn't want him around. He was competition, he thought. But he said, deal gently with Absalom. So the people went out into the field of the battle against Israel, and the battle was in the woods of Ephraim. The people of Israel were overthrown there before the servants of David, and a great slaughter of 20,000 men took place there that day. For the battle there was scattered over the face of the whole countryside, and the woods devoured more people that day than the sword devoured. Now, if you're, if you're not used to fighting around trees, or for that matter, navigating around a forest, if you're used to deserts and plains and open spaces and not lots of trees, you can get disoriented quickly. When I lived here in the city, I would take walks in the afternoon with the dogs or with my son or just myself, and I'd pray, whatever. And, you know, you could always see there's not much foliage, not much shade going on. Easy to kind of find out where you are all the time. Living up in the mountains taking a walk through the woods, sometimes I get completely disoriented. And I'm good with navigation generally. But there have been times where weather will come in, a snowstorm will blow in, I go, now which way is out? So imagine trying to fight under those conditions. And Absalom met the servants of David. Absalom rode on a mule. I think that's his first mistake in a war. A horse I can understand, but quick, get away on a mule. 
the mule went under the thick boughs of a great terebinth tree, and his head caught in the terebinth, so he was left hanging between heaven and earth, and the mule, which is under him, went on. Maybe turned back and said, hey, hang in there, and left. Now, he got his head caught in the tree, it says. It is Josephus, in his book, Antiquities of the Jews, Volume 7, that draws the conclusion it must have been his thick hair that got caught in the branches. That's why you see some of the stories uh, of the Bible, especially this one painted, where you see Absalom hanging from his thick, long hair caught up in the trees. What's interesting, it's almost poetic justice. This would be humorous in any other situation. You know, just uh, hanging between heaven and earth. You know, it's a hairy situation to be in, you got to admit. You can't part with it. And... Uh, <coughs> but this is not a humorous situation. This is David's son. He is caught. I say poetic justice because he seemed to make a big deal out of his hair. He knew he was good looking. He knew that his hair was thick and long and people said, ooh, look at that hair. And so it became for him his identity. It's what set him apart from just everybody else. It's, look at my cool hairdo. And God said, oh, okay. Watch this, hairy boy. Now a certain man saw it and told Joab, I just saw Absalom hanging in there, hanging in a terebinth tree. So Joab said to the man who told him, you just saw him. Why didn't you strike him there to the ground? I would have given you ten shekels of silver and a belt. Well, there you go. Now why didn't he do it? You answer the question. Because they heard the king say, hey, be gentle with my son. It's not in Joab's mind. He said to Joab, verse 12, Though I were to receive a thousand shekels of silver in my hand, I wouldn't raise my hand against the king's son. For in our hearing the king commanded you and Abishai and Ittai, remember Ittai the Gittite, saying, Beware lest anyone touch the young man Absalom. Otherwise I would have dealt falsely against my own life. For there is nothing hidden from the king, and you yourself would have yourself set yourself against me. Joab said, I can't linger with you. He took three spears in his hand and thrust them through Absalom's heart while he was still alive in the midst of the terebinth tree. And ten young men who bore Joab's armor surrounded Absalom, struck, and killed him. And Joab blew the trumpet and the people returned from pursuing Israel, for Joab held back the people. And they took Absalom and cast him into a large pit in the woods and laid a very large heap of stones over him. And all of Israel fled, everyone to his tent. Now Absalom, in his lifetime, had taken and set up a pillar for himself. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. And he called the pillar after his own names. And to this day it is known as called Absalom's monument. There is a pillar in Jerusalem in the Kidron Valley that is called Absalom's Pillar. It's there to this day. If you go on a tour to Israel, you will see what they call Absalom's Pillar. It's huge, made out of solid stone, carved and set up there. As you're driving by the gates of Jerusalem, you look down and you see this large monument. 
It's called the Pillar of Absalom because of this text. However, the archaeologists more accurately date it to about the second century A.D. by some rich, maybe uh, Jewish patron of the city who had this built for himself. But during the Middle Ages, the inhabitants of Jerusalem would go down to the valley of the Kidron, where this huge pillar was, and they'd bring their sons down there, their rebellious sons. And they would first throw stones at the pillar. And they'd take their sons down there, if they were rebellious, and give them a whipping down at Absalom's pillar. And then pointing up to the pillar, they would say, this is what becomes of a rebellious son, pointing to Absalom's pillar. It interests me, and I think it's there for a purpose, the contrast between the heap of stones where he was buried and the monument he set up for himself. You see, Absalom wanted to leave a legacy, a monument. He wanted people to remember him as some great guy. So let's build a tower, a monument, my pillar. The monument he got, the pillar that was erected, was a little heap of stones by the guy who killed him. Here's the lesson I believe. The life that you lead is the monument that you leave. However you live is what people will remember you for. You're not going to trick them by some wonderful thing you do. It's who you really are that people will know about you. It's the life you lead that's the monument you leave. And here's a guy who died as a usurper, as a murderer, murdered by David's own army. And that's the legacy, this pile of stones. Be careful about pride. All of us are tempted by it in a thousand situations a day to take the credit for something, to have attention drawn to ourselves, some issue where we want to shine. But you know, pride destroys everything God builds. Pride destroys families. Pride destroys marriages. Pride destroys churches. When Jim Baker was let out of prison, probably a week after, I met with him in North Carolina, and he confessed honestly, the reason my ministry, PTL, fell was because of my pride. You see, here's the danger. Even with a wonderful man or woman of God that he begins to use, God begins to use that person. And that person looks around at all that God is doing through her or through him, and they start taking the credit for it. Look what I've done. Look how wonderful I am. Like Nebuchadnezzar, this is the great Babylon that I have built. That day he was eating grass. And I don't mean marijuana. He was eating grass like a cow. <laughs> Humbled by God. We start to inflate, and we think we're important. We're awesome. I should be popular. I should be more popular than I am. There's more people that should get the benefit of me rather than realizing you're just a dirt pot, a clay pot. And the thing that makes you valuable and wonderful is the treasure inside the dirt clay pot. God, the gospel, the Holy Spirit, the gifts he's given you, they're not of yourself. You know, we humans can sort of be like that woodpecker who was pecking away at the tree, hard, hard, pecking, pecking. Lightning came, storm blew by, lightning struck the tree, it broke in half. 
The woodpecker flew back and said, ha, look what I just did. He didn't do anything, but he took the credit for it. Pride. Here's a man fallen, destroyed by pride. The chapter closes, and we're probably just going to make it through the close, and we'll stop. With a guy, you're introduced to him in verse 19, a Ahimaaz. Have you ever heard of a Ahimaaz? I hope you remember a Ahimaaz. Uh, n- not that you would name your children that, but remember his story. I find it to be an interesting story. But then again, I love these, what some would call obscure Bible stories. I think they're packed full of great lessons. Ahimaaz was in the priestly caste. He had a ministry set out for him, a goal designed for him by God. But notice something. Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, who is the priest, you remember, meaning Ahimaaz is going to be a priest, said, let me run now and take the news to the king how the Lord has avenged him of his enemies. Now let me ask you a question. If your son died, do you want to bear the news to him? I don't. I don't want to be the guy that tells the king, your son's dead. Especially David, for I would have remembered back a few chapters to chapter 1 when the Amalekite told David about King Saul and David said, go kill this guy. David was very reactionary. I wouldn't want to do this. But here's this kid who goes, send me, I want to run. Joab said to him, you shall not take the news this day, for you shall take the news another day. But today you shall take no news because the king's son is dead. Joab said to the Cushite, Good move, Joab. The Cushite was at least a foreigner, so he thinks, you know, a priest won't die. The Cushite will die. That's his thinking, no doubt. Go tell the king what you've seen. So the Cushite bowed himself to Joab and ran. And Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok, said again to Joab, But whatever happens, please let me also run after the Cushite. Boy, this kid has had a lot of caffeine or chocolate or something. He wants to run, doesn't he? And Joab said, why will you run, my son, since you have no news ready? But whatever happens, he said, let me run. So he said to him, run, you know. I can argue with the kid. Okay, have fun, buddy. Hightail it. So Ahimaaz ran by the way of the plain and outran the Cushite. Now David was sitting between the two gates. The watchman went up to the roof over the gate to the wall, lifted his eyes, and looked. And there was a man running alone. And the watchman cried out and told the king. And the king said, if he is alone, there is news in his mouth. And he came rapidly and drew near. And the watchman saw another man running. And the watchman called to the gatekeeper and said, there's another man running alone. And the king said, He also brings news. So the watchman said, I think the running of the first is like the running of Ahimaaz, the son of Zadok. So apparently, this kid ran a lot. (laughs) People wake up, there he goes. He's running. So much so that they could just tell his gait, you know, his, his speed, his style of running. See, in a distance, you know, they don't have the binoculars we have. Boy, that looks like a ass. He's running. 
And the king said, he's a good man. <laughs> and he comes with good news. And Ahimaaz called out and said to the king, all is well. And he bowed down with his face to the earth before the king and said, blessed be the Lord your God who has delivered up the men who raised their hand against my lord, the king. And the king said, Is the young man Absalom safe? And Ahimaaz answered, When Joab sent the king's servant and me, your servant, I saw a great tumult, but I did not know what it was about. Did you hear that? Kid ran all the way and has no message. Well, I just ran after that guy, and there was something that happened. I don't know what it was. <laughs> you ran to do that? And the king said, turn aside and stand here. So he turned aside, and he stood still. Ahimaaz reminds me of a lot of different kinds of folks. Every now and then, as I flip through the channels, and I do flip through the channel, I do channel surf. I'm a great surfer, channel surfer. And I do it because I'm never really compelled to stay on anything for very long. There's nothing really interesting to me. So, bing, 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 and then I turn it off, usually. Every now and then, I'll bing past certain religious broadcasts. And I watch people ranting and raving and sucking wind and just sh sh shouting. And sometimes I'll even put it on mute. Have you ever tried that? Go to a Christian station, put it on mute, and just watch. And I think, okay, they look mad. It must be urgent. This has got to be the most compelling message ever. What is he saying? So I'll turn the mute off and get the sound now. And so often... There's really not a message. There's really nothing there. There's just a lot of sucking of wind, a lot of fabulous, Handa, God loves us. And I'm going, wow, wow. That guy's running, man. He's running hard. No direction, no message, but he's running. And then, I think of young men that I know in the ministry. And I say young men. I think I can say that now. You know, David said, he wrote in a psalm, I was young and now I am old. And I'm getting to the point where I can say that now. I was young, now I'm old. And I see young men running, and I look at them, and they're all excited about ministry and stuff. They just don't know what stuff they're supposed to do. They're just running. And they got their run in this direction and that direction, never really contented because they have no real calling yet or message yet. They're running. And it doesn't make sense to run all that way unless you have a message, a direction. Abishai, not Abishai, but Ahimaaz had no message here. What happens to a person who runs without a message, who goes in all directions without God's direction. What will eventually happen, and I see it often in the ministry, they call it burnout. 
Now, I have not experienced burnout that I know of yet. And I don't think you ever have to as long as you're doing what God told you to do. But if you're not doing what God told you to do, you don't have his calling, his compelling, you'll get burned out, bored, dissatisfied, and angry with God's people. That's what happens when you run without direction. God was told by Jeremiah, or Jeremiah was told by God, and Jeremiah spoke these words that God spoke to him, to the people. He said, Jeremiah, regarding a group of prophets, I didn't send them, neither did I command them to go. Therefore, they will not profit this people any good. I can't think of a worse fate in the ministry than that. I didn't call them. I didn't send them. They're running. Look at them. But they're not going to profit these people any good. Oz Guinness says that there is a problem he sees in the world and even in the church. An identity of crisis, he calls it. An identity crisis. A crisis of identity, he calls it, but... That's, our, that's an English way of saying an identity crisis. It's discovering who we are, really. Who am I? Why am I here, exactly? What is my purpose? What is my calling? What am I supposed to be doing? And he said that human beings, especially in the Western world, are on this incredible, lifelong pursuit about me. Me. Who am I? And even in the church, we can get off focus. This is what he says. In Western culture, identity has become our most important private project. God alone is the highest and the only lasting good, so all objects we desire short of God are as finite and incomplete as we ourselves are, and therefore disappointing if we make them the objects of our ultimate desire. In the ministry... I know people who make the running their goal. Where am I supposed to run? Where's my track? You want me to run here? Should I be running there? The issue isn't your running. The issue is God being glorified in what God called you to do. And here, Ahimaaz became identified not for his ministry, not for his priesthood, not for his message. He became identified as he's the guy who runs. He's busy. He has nothing to say. It's an incredible story, actually. So David just says, you know what? Stand here. I'm sure it was hard for him just to stand still for a while. <gasps> okay. <gasps> Good boy. Stay. <laughs> just then the Cushite came, and the Cushite said, There is good news, my lord the king, for the Lord has avenged you this day of those who rose against you. And the king said to the Cushite, is the young man Absalom safe? And the Cushite answered, May the enemies of my lord the king and all who rise against you to do you harm be as that young man is. That's a fancy way of saying your son is dead. Now, he thinks that's good news, and the king's going to go, Good, the rebel's done. We can get on with the kingdom. Didn't happen. The king was deeply moved and went to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he wept, he said thus, Oh, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, if only I had died in your place. Oh, Absalom, my son, my son. And Joab was told, Behold, the king is weeping and mourning for Absalom. 
So the victory that day was turned into mourning for all the people. For the people heard it that day, the king is grieved for his son. It's a sad ending. It's a sad story. It's sad because you have a father and you have a son who could have been reconciled. You have a father who should have thrown his arms around his son like the dad did the prodigal son and said, kill the fatted calf, bring in the best robe, have a party for my son. But he didn't. He was too right, too proud. He built walls instead of bridges. Oh, I know we could easily say, well, that was David's generation. Then it was a curse for his generation. Because I believe had his father years before reconciled with his son like should have been done, brought him into Jerusalem, had a face-to-face with him, which never happened, this wouldn't have happened. Wouldn't have happened. I've stood in a lot of hospitals as a pastor and as a medical worker. And I watched lots of people die. The process of them actually giving their last breath, dying. And I watched his relatives come to the hospital too late or watching them die because the person is out of it, unable to communicate, they die. And the wailing that takes place because there was something between that patient and that relative that was never resolved. It was never resolved. And I think David's wailing isn't just for his son Absalom. He's wailing also for his own parenting. His own parenting. Because I'll never be able to restore. Folks, this may seem trite and simplistic, but life is too short to hold a grudge. A grudge is is the heaviest weight you'll carry on your shoulder. And you might think, well, I'm right. And you know what? You're miserable every day of your life because you carry it. Give that person a call. Say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. They should call me. They should be sorry. So what? Do it anyway. Build a bridge, not a wall. See what happens. Diffuse it. Tell that person, I love you. Send them a card, send them flowers, send them a note. At least then you have diffused the power they are holding over you that's destroying you. You're free. Nothing more freeing than that. Especially it's not worth it when it comes to a parent and a child. A hundred years from now, says this writer, it will not matter what kind of car I drove, what kind of house I lived in, how much I had in my bank, nor what my clothes look like. A hundred years from now, it will not matter what kind of school I attended, what kind of typewriter I used. This was written some time ago. How large or small my church. But the world may be a little better because I was important in the life of my child. That's a good reminder, isn't it? I was important, and uh, if, if I can be important in the life of my child, that beats being important in anybody else's life. Because that child develops fatherhood, husbandhood. So, well, husbandhood isn't a word. Well, we've just made it a word. <laughs> and the fatherhood of God based upon how I act. And so, Lord, we have an example of not just a father, but a father and a son, both of whom could have come 
and reconciled could have made it halfway. But the resentment and the bitterness, the hatred and then the revenge took over. A house was divided. A kingdom was hindered. A son was killed. A father was grieved, all because of the refusal to forgive and reconcile. Lord, I pray that we might understand what our calling is from heaven, what our message is to be. And Lord, some of us tonight who are discontented in an area of service, an area of ministry, we just like to run. The problem is we really don't have a message that's compelling us, driving us. We don't have good news. We don't even know what direction we're to run in. Help us to wait for further instruction from you, Lord, so that it would never be said of us, he, she, will not profit this people at all. We want to be a blessing to people and be a blessing to you. And Lord, as we read your words, so many lessons, so many of these stories, this wonderful history book that lets us know how people dealt with you and how you dealt with people. We love this book, Lord, because we love you, its author. And may we have an insatiable desire to know more about you, your background, the family tree, the kingdom business, where we've been, where we're going as a race. And Father, we pause before we do anything else, before we sing any note, and just lay our lives before you. And in simple worship, just say, I love you, Father. Heavenly Father, perfect Father, heal the wounds that so many of us carry from the past. Take the baggage, Lord. Release us. As you have forgiven us, help us, O oh Lord, to forgive others. In Jesus' name. <laughs>